Well, this morning we begin what many say is one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, if you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair, it's page 778, 778. And uh, Alicia and I lived in Houston right out of seminary for a season. Alicia was really glad to say goodbye to Houston, but while we were there getting to know uh, various pastors, and a pastor friend of mine at the time was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we, we had connected for lunch or coffee or something like that, and I was asking him how it was going. He said, man, I, uh, I'm preaching through Matthew, and I got to chapter 24, and I just didn't know what to do with it, and so I just skipped it. I just skipped it. I told, so this was a good church. This is a church that preaches through books of the Bible. And so he told this congregation, listen, church, I realize this is God's word. I just don't know what to do with it. Let me keep studying. I'll come back to it. The brother never came back to it. <laughs> And so I just want to warn you in advance, this week and next week in particular are going to be challenging sermons because they're challenging texts. And if you're a guest, glad you're here, I just want you to know the next two weeks are not the norm, but we have some heavy lifting Bible study to do for this chapter. In many ways, we're studying history this morning because the Christian faith is a historical faith. You up for it? I hope so because you're stuck. I've got the mic. But before diving in, before looking at Matthew 24, I want to get our bearings a little bit for this weekend next on how to approach difficult passages like this. So just briefly, five principles. Number one, our aim here is to discover the author's intent. We're trying to get it. What did Jesus mean? What was Jesus' intention in saying what he said? Number two, we want to read obscure passages, which we'll see some of those this weekend next. In light of clear passages, and I don't know about you, but after today and next week, I think you'll be thankful that so much of the Bible is so clear. These types of passages that are really hard and naughty are actually the exception, not the norm, and I'm thankful for that. So we want to read these obscure ones in, in light of the clear ones. The next principle is that the context here is king. Context is king when it comes to figuring out what exactly is going on here in Matthew 24. Fourth, Scripture interprets Scripture. This will be important this week and especially next week. We want to understand Scripture by using Scripture to help us. And then finally, audience relevance. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And so we're going to see why that's going to matter this week and next. In this sermon and especially the next sermon, they are going to be chalk full of scripture. We'll put some of them on the slides. I'd encourage you just to try to listen. Don't try to take it all in. We post the manuscript online. So if you're really interested and you want to follow up when you go to sermons, you'll be able to find the whole manuscript. And I've actually cut so much of this sermon that I put it in footnotes. This sermon has 35 footnotes <laughs> trying to spare you a little bit. But if you want to look back, it'll be there and you can go look up all the cross references because there are a lot. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As we've seen really in the last three chapters, Jesus now is done. His patience has run out. And he says the temple 
is done. If you remember, it's been a few weeks now, but look back at chapter 23, verse 38. Jesus said, see, your house, speaking of the temple, your house is left to you desolate. And so Jesus tells them the temple will be destroyed. It'll be thrown down. And listen, friends, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in that day, this was unthinkable. Remember, the temple was the spiritual heart of the nation of Israel. It was the central symbol of the Old Covenant, the economic, the religious, the social, spiritual heart of Old Covenant Israel. So if the temple is gone, everything is gone. This this can't happen. This is where God meets with his people. This is the place of sacrifice. But if we've been paying attention to Matthew 21 and 22 and 23, this has really been his message right from the beginning as he enters Jerusalem. That's why he cleans it out. And quote scripture to say, it's over. He says, the temple would be leveled. And it was leveled. In less than a generation by the Roman army. Here's how one archaeologist puts it. We do not have any remains of the Herodian temple, the temple Herod built. The Herodian temple itself because of the devastating Roman destruction in AD 70. If you know your history, you'll know that The Romans came in under Titus and wiped it out. This is exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen in this chapter. It's amazing. All that remained after this war was part of the substructure of the temple precincts, but not the temple building themselves. It was gone. Jesus said it would be so. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus is here. He's he's now on the Mount of Olives. He comes and he sits down. From there you could have this panoramic view of the temple. And this is not an accident. Remember, this is where he started in Matthew 21.1. He stopped off at the Mount of Olives before he goes in. The Mount of Olives is really significant in the Bible. It was full of messianic expectations. And Jesus is leaving the temple. He's done. He walks out. And this is God leaving the temple. This is God's presence leaving, just like it had done in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 when God left and he had never come back. Let me read from Ezekiel 11.23. And the glory, in other words, the presence... The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, Jerusalem, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is replaying this old history. God's presence is leaving the temple. This also is what Zechariah prophesied would happen. Let me read from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Israel, will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. He's saying he will come in judgment as the Lord sits on the Mount of Olives. This is what we see happening right here. 
And notice the disciples ask two questions. You catch that? Two questions. One, when will these things be? He just mentioned the temple. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And got to get geeky a little bit in this sermon. This word for coming here is used specifically throughout this chapter in specific times and strategic ways. And the word is the word maybe you've heard before. It's the word parousia. It's the idea of his second coming. So Jesus is going to come in judgment on AD 70 spiritually. But the second coming is another story. And so they ask, when are you going to come in judgment on the temple? And when are you going to come? Second coming. Two questions here. And so Matthew 24, 1 to 35, the next two weeks, are answering the first question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And then Matthew 24, 36 and following will be about the second coming, the parousia. Our focus today and next week are going to be on the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24, 1 to 34. And so they ask, when's it going to happen? When will the, when will the temple be destroyed? And we have to skip to the end because Jesus answer it, answers it with crystal clarity. So look with me over at Matthew 24, verse 34. After covering so much of what we'll cover today and then tomorrow, here's what Jesus, I mean, Sunday, next Sunday, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You got to get this. This is a really important verse. It's like an anchor verse for this chapter. Very clearly, Jesus tells us when this will all happen. This generation, he says, will see all that he's going to describe in these 34 verses. This time indicator is a driving verse for us. King Jesus, the Lord of the world, says that everything we're going to see this morning would take place in the first century. All these things will take place within this generation. Sometimes this verse is missed. Notice he says this generation. He doesn't say that generation. Jesus is talking to his people and he says this generation. He's talking about the generation that's hearing him speak. Just like he had said in 2336, he used the same phrase. Jesus is talking about this final generation of Old Covenant Israel. Not talking about some future generation. The word generation always refers to Jesus' own contemporaries. That's really important. Scripture interprets Scripture. The word always means the people that he's addressing. And in biblical usage, it's about 40 years. Generation was 40 years. And generation means just that. It means generation. It doesn't mean race. Jesus knows that word. It doesn't mean nation. That's another word. Jesus knows that word too. Generation means generation. It occurs 18 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And every time it refers to the group of people that Jesus is addressing. Scripture interprets Scripture. So Jesus says it's all going to happen within this generation. And he says all these things. He doesn't say all those things that might happen 2,000 years from now. He says, all these things that I've just told you. And he says, all these things, not some of these things. By the end of next week, you'll know why I'm belaboring this point. And Jesus is speaking to who? To his disciples who asked him a specific question. And he says, you, to his disciples, not they, some future generation. And Jesus uses that word you to speak of his disciples nine times in these verses. My main aim the next two weeks is to say Jesus was right. You can trust him. 
all these things did take place within a generation. So I'm on a campaign to show that Jesus is a true prophet, not a false prophet. Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries of things they will experience. So verse 34 is a guiding verse for us this week and next. Whatever these next verses mean, Jesus says they will happen in the first century. So again, many interpreters, probably most Probably most interpreters, I want you to know I'm a minority here, and I want you to take everything I say and you go study the scriptures. But most interpreters, I think, get this verse wrong and say this is all future stuff. And they read the newspaper to try to pinpoint what Jesus is talking about, which is ironic because here in a little while, Jesus is going to say we ought not to take these things and use them for end-time speculation. So Jesus says the end is not yet, verse 4. Matthew 24, verse 4, the end is not yet. 24.4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. So Jesus warns them, many are going to come and claim to be the Messiah. And he says, don't listen to them. And this happened really quickly after Jesus warned his disciples. Listen to Acts 5, verse 36. For before these days... Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. They shouldn't have followed him. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Jesus said this would happen in the very early church. It happened. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now... In the first century, many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Many will lead you astray. That happened really early. We could see a lot of other passages. We'll keep going, though. Verse 6 of Matthew 24. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So he warns his disciples, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And as Jesus is speaking this, Rome was actually at a relative time of peace. AD 30 to 60 was a peaceful time. You've probably heard of the Pax Romana. But not long after that, Rome was torn apart, mostly by civil war. The year AD 68 and 69 was the year of four emperors. It was ugly. There's a secular work of history called the Annals of Tacitus, and it covers this time period. And here's how it, it uses phrases like this to describe this time period just after Jesus speaks. Disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, war in Britain, the war in Armenia, and on and on. Wars and rumors of wars, it came really quickly. This was a turbulent time, especially for the Jewish people. There was an uprising against them in Alexandria. 50,000 were killed in Seleucia, 20,000 in Caesarea. Jesus warned them, this is about to happen. Jesus says there's going to be famines. There were famines in the first century. Again, the book of Acts. Listen to Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up 
and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the worlds. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So great famine right there in the early church. And of course we know famine was a major issue because what was one of Paul's main ministries as he went to Gentile churches? Obviously preach the gospel and start churches and raise up elders. But you know what else he would do? This thing he called the gathering or the offering. He wanted to raise money from the Gentile churches to take back to the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because of a severe famine. We get a lot of help here from a, a secular historian. He was a Jewish historian. He was not Christian. His name's uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus. He lived there in this time, and he actually wrote a history book about the war. Some of you will have read it. It's called The War of the Jews. He wrote it in AD 75. And so he was a Jewish, good Jewish man for a while, and then he kind of got in cahoots with Rome. And so he's this unique person who has a foot in both worlds, and he's really helpful. He describes what happened here in the first century. He writes this. Then did the famine, Jesus said there would be famines, then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. It was a terrible famine. And at the time of the Roman War, there was a terrible famine. They had stored food supplies, but rival factions destroyed and ultimately burned all the stored up food. It was a terrible, terrible time. Jesus tells his disciples that within a generation, there'll be earthquakes. Flip over just a couple pages in Matthew. We see them in Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Then look at the next chapter, chapter 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So right off the bat, and then we see it in the book of Acts as well, Acts 16, 26. It says, suddenly there was a great earthquake. That was in Philippi. Josephus records of major earthquakes in Crete and Rome and Phrygia, Laodicea, Campania, Pompeii, Judea, all before A.D. 70. We have other secular historical records of major earthquakes in Palestine, Asia Minor in 61, Italy in 62, Jerusalem in 67. Another historian, secular named Seneca, said others occurred in Asia, in Achaia, Syria, Macedonia. Tacitus, another secular historian, mentions earthquakes in Crete, in Rome, Apamea, Phrygia, Campania, Laodicea, Pompeii. Writing about the year AD 51, he writes this, this year witnessed many repeated earthquakes, a shortage of corn resulting in famine. It was established that there was no more than 15 days supply of food in the city of Rome. Jesus predicted it was fulfilled right there in his own lifetime, within a generation. Jesus is a true prophet. Listen to the way the historian Tacitus puts it. He describes this whole time period of the late 60s. The history on which I'm entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible, even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, often both at the same time. 
Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or returning after the lapse of the ages. Beside the manifold misfortune that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. All that to say, and we could say a lot more, Jesus was right. All this happened within the lifetime of his disciples. All this happened within a generation. It all happened within 40 years. But what does Jesus say about all this stuff? Don't be alarmed about it. The end is not yet. The end of what? I don't think it's the end of the world as we're going to see. Remember, Jesus said all this would take place within a generation. The end of the world did not happen in the first century. I think as we'll see, he's talking about the end of the old covenant, the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem. And Jesus discourages his disciples from using these things these events and these experiences is some end-time speculation. So this is not part of that. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He says, rather, stand firm. Stand firm through the trials. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Notice here, verse 9 starts with, then. So we have a clear sequence of events. All these verses go together and Jesus lays them out in clear chronological fashion. I say that because many, maybe most interpreters try to say, well, this part's about this and this part's about that and this part's about this. And I'm saying it all goes together. Then, he says, these disciples would experience tribulation because of their faith in Christ. Of course, if you remember Matthew chapter 10, we think we might have covered that in the year 2014 or something like that. But if you remember back then, what did he say? You'll be persecuted. You'll go from town to town. He says the same thing in John 15. Jesus was often warning his people, you're going to face persecution because of me, because of my name. And then, of course, the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see. I think oftentimes we think that the early church was persecuted by Rome. It was a little later, but not in the Bible. In the Bible, you know who was the number one persecutor of the church? It's the Jewish people. And that's what we see. Let me just read. In fact, you can flip over there with me. Flip over to the right a couple books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 4. It's really what the whole book of Acts is about. Jewish leaders trying to stamp out the church and the gospel going forward. Jesus says, you'll be hated, you'll be persecuted. Because of me, the church is launched in Acts 2. Right off the bat, we see Jesus was right. Look at Acts 4.1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. There they're arrested. Flip over to Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Acts 
When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They're beaten for preaching the gospel. I love the next verse, though. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Then you have Acts chapter 6, a whole long chapter, 58 verses of Stephen being stoned to death by the Jewish leadership for preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Then look over at Acts chapter 8 verse 1, right after Stephen is killed. And Saul approved his execution, and there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Flip over to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. On and on and on. We could go to so many other passages that the persecution began right there within their generation as Jesus warned them, buckle up, it's coming. Jesus says, many are going to fall away. 1 Timothy 4.1 says that some will depart from the faith. At the end of Paul's ministry, this is incredible, the Apostle Paul, the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy, he says, all in Asia turned away. Jesus warned it would happen. Apostasy would happen in the first century. Jesus warned that there will be many false prophets who would lead many away. And if we've been studying Matthew back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus warned us of false prophets. 1 John 4 1 says, Many false prophets have gone into the world. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, The church is being plagued by false apostles. 2 John 7 says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. I'm just trying to say Jesus was right. Making a case to defend the Lord as a true prophet. Josephus records that during the war, a false prophet proclaimed that God had commanded them to go up to the temple courts to receive the tokens of their deliverance. And a large crowd died as a result. Don't follow them. Don't follow the false messiahs. Then notice in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And you say, okay, Blake, now you're done. That definitely didn't happen within a generation. Jesus said it did. Jesus, in verse 34, said, all these things will take place within a generation. So what does that mean? Well, two important definitions. End and world. What does he mean by end? Again, I've already tipped my hat. I think he's not talking about the end of the world. The end of the world didn't happen in the first century. He's talking about the end of the old covenant age. Other passages speak this way too. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, talking about the local church there in Corinth, that the end of the ages has come upon them. Well, what does he mean? Did the end of the world come upon the church in Corinth in the first century? No, but you know what did? The end of the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, Jesus appeared, first coming, once for all at the end of the age to put away sin. Jesus came 
to end the old covenant negatively. You know what we could say positively? Jesus came to establish the new covenant. So he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the old covenant. So the gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end of the old covenant will come. So wait a minute, what about worlds? It's actually an unfortunate translation. Some of your translations will differ. It's a little bit misleading because the word here for world is not the normal word for world. The normal word for world is cosmos. Y'all know that word. That's not what he uses here. He actually uses a specific word. It's called oikumene. And here's how Luke uses the same word in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, oikumene, all the world should be registered. Now let's ask ourselves, did, did that decree go to Abilene, Texas? No. It's not the entire universe world, but it's the oikumene. It's the whole Roman Empire. That's what the word often means in the New Testament. It's the inhabited world, which at that time meant the area surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. The then known world. Again, this word is used to refer to the Roman Empire several times in the book of Acts. Five, six times. doesn't mean the entire world. It means the inhabited world. So in Luke 2.1, that, that decree that went out, it didn't go to the whole wide world. It went out to the Roman Empire. In fact, the NIV translates the word world in, in Luke 2 as Roman worlds. The entire Roman world. That's a good translation. The CSB translates Luke 2.1, that word, Ocumene, as the whole empire. I submit that's what it should be translated in Matthew 24, 14. So what Jesus means here is that this gospel will be preached all over the Roman Empire before Jerusalem is sieged. Or, if you don't like that, maybe he's just using a figure of speech. I think he does mean Roman Empire, but maybe he's just using a figure of speech. Paul actually does that quite a bit. Let me show you some. Colossians 1, 6 says, The gospel has come to you. As indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Colossians 1.23. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Romans 1.8. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. First century Rome. Romans 10.18. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Figure of speech to speak of universality. So if Paul can speak... And say that in his day, the gospel was proclaimed all over. We shouldn't struggle to embrace the Lord's teaching here. He said all these things will happen within a generation, within 40 years. And I think we should take him at his word. Here's the point. The gospel is going to go far beyond Judea once this is over. The gospel was confined to Jerusalem until the end of the old covenant, the beginning of the new. And now where does the gospel go? Everywhere. Beyond the New Testament world, beyond the world they inhabited, Americans and Australians were not on his mind quite yet. So with the end of the temple comes the end of the Old Covenant, which leads to the universal proclamation of Jesus to all nations. I love the way he describes the gospel here. He says, what is the gospel? It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news that the king is here, and he's beginning his kingdom. That's why Jesus starts his ministry in Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's our response then? Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Now Jesus then turns to the beginning of the end of Jerusalem. 
Look with me at verse 15. 24, 15. So, maybe your Bible says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I'll stop there. So he begins this new section here with, so, therefore, and we need to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It's all connected. Verses 1 to 9, 1 to 8, verse 9, then. Verses 9 to 14, and then verse 15, therefore. And we don't have time, but next week we'll see verse 29. Immediately. This is all one unit that is all connected, and Jesus says it all takes place within a generation. He's still talking to his disciples about what they will experience. He says, when you see this, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel mentioned, whatever that is, Jesus says his first century audience will see it. You, disciples, will see it. Luke actually helps us out. Luke's a lot clearer. Listen to Luke 21, verse 20. Should have a slide for you. This is Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. So we have Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Jesus telling his disciples, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. So what's the desolation? The desolation is Rome invading Jerusalem. And specifically, the abomination of desolation, just like that it happened in previous Jewish history, is when pagans come into God's temple. And that's exactly what Rome did. They not only destroyed the city, they went in to the holy place and they set up their pagan symbols in the temple and offered sacrifices in it. And this fulfills Daniel's vision. The abomination of desolation. When the Roman armies come in, you're going to see it. This fulfills Daniel's vision of the Messiah coming and putting an end to sacrifice. Jesus did this in, in his death, and he will judge the temple in AD 70, just like he said he would. Your house is left to you desolate. This is tragic, brutal history. And now Jesus is going to talk about specific instructions about a local judgment in the first century. Look at verse 16. You tracking? Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is not final judgment. This is not second coming. It can't be. What's his instructions about all this? Leave Judea. Disaster's coming. Head to the hills. But if this is final judgment... The mountains are no safe haven, no escape from the final wrath of God. This judgment can be escaped by foot. Jesus is referring to the Roman siege of Jerusalem that happened roughly 40 years after he's speaking. Look at verse 17. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, 
in those days. Saying, when the time comes, Jesus is warning his disciples, when you see this, do not delay. Get out of town. Don't worry about your stuff. This is spoken to the disciples in first century Judea about leaving Judea before the Roman army invades. Because we know that for many reasons we've already seen. But also in the first century, the, the roofs were flat. It's often where you'd hang around. That's why in the law it said build a fence around it, build a parapet so no one falls off. No one's hanging out on the roofs today in most places, but they did back then. So he's saying, get out of town. His audience is them, not us, not way out in the future. And he says it's going to be hard for pregnant women because pregnant women can't move as quickly. And again, if this were talking about the final judgment, there would be no worry about getting your stuff or not getting your stuff. There will be no escaping that judgment by foot. Look at verse 20. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Pray that you'll be able to get out of town like you need to get out of town on the Sabbath. They could only travel about three quarters of a mile according to Pharisaical law. That would not be enough distance to get away from Rome. Would not be enough distance to get away. Wouldn't have enough time. And this is amazing. Jesus tells his disciples, within a generation, all this is going to happen. And guess what? His disciples listened. They listened. They got out of town. Josephus tells us that over a million Jews died in the Jewish war. Very, very few Christians died. Why? They listened and they left. Most of them went to a place called Pella, about 60 miles northeast of Jerusalem. The early Christian scholar, historian Eusebius writes this. The whole body, talking about the church in Jerusalem, the whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation given to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. They heard the Lord warning them, this is going to happen, and they left, and they survived, and the gospel went forth. Look at verse 21. For then there will be Great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. This very same language is used in Ezekiel and in Lamentations. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus warns his disciples, this war is going to be absolutely terrible. And it was. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in the 1800s, comments on this verse and says, The destruction of Jerusalem was more terrible than anything that the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. Even Titus, the Roman general, even Titus seemed to see in his cruel work the hand of an avenging God. Truly, the blood of the martyrs slain in Jerusalem was amply avenged when the whole city became a veritable akeldama or field of blood. Over a million Jews lost their lives. It was absolutely horrific. Reading Joseph, Josephus' story is 
will turn the stomach. The persecution and the famine was so bad that he tells of one mother who ended up killing her own infant and roasting the baby to eat it. It was tragic. It's actually talked about in Scripture. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, and you have the law, and then towards the end, you have the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Here's the law, Israel. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If not, you'll be cursed. This here, 8070, is the definitive curses of the covenant. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, verse 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distressed with which your enemy shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give any to them, any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she's so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband. She embraces to her son and to her daughter her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. Because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sickness, grieving and lasting. What's fascinating is Josephus was not a Christian, yet he records the very fulfillment of these curses. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Lamentations 4.10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. It was tragic. Thousands were publicly crucified, often at a rate of 500 a day. The Romans would crucify the Jews and vice versa when they could. They fought back. Josephus says, room was wanting, lacking. There was no room for the crosses. Room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. Elsewhere, Josephus records the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. Both of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. Jesus was right. It was unimaginable. And Jesus says, these days of vengeance will be so terrible that if they were not cut short, even the elect would be lost. But for their sake, they would stop. The elect are those whom God has chosen, those whom God will preserve. So it was cut short. Rome attacked brutally for five months. And then in the fall of AD 70, it was done. It was over. Within a generation. 
All this will take place within this generation. One major implication, if you saw the verse there, that means that the great tribulation is in our past, not in our future. Jesus mentioned it, and Jesus was referring to the destruction of the temple in the first century. And then Jesus warns again about false teachers and false prophets and false messiahs. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. Then if anyone says, do you look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the parousia, second coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So again, you'll be led astray again. Josephus tells of a large number of Samaritans who were duped by false prophets. They went up to Mount Gerizim to supposedly see these holy vessels. And Pilate dispatched the cavalry and killed them all. It happened regularly. Jesus says, don't be duped by them. And then in verses 27 and 28, he has this parenthetical statement to mention the second coming, the parousia. And he mentions the second coming to distinguish it from A.D. 70. Jesus is saying this, all this stuff you're seeing, that's not the second coming. That's not the parousia. You'll know that very clearly. Like lightning, don't confuse these days with the second coming. Don't associate the things I've been talking about here with the end of the world. And don't let people use these things as a basis for their messianic claims. Again, in Matthew 24, 36, he'll change his subject and start talking about the second coming, but not until then. King Jesus says these things will take place within a generation. Now, if I'm right in what I've been saying, all this is first and foremost for the first century. But it has applications for us in at least four ways. First, watch out for false teachers. Watch out. Jesus says it twice here in this Olivet Discourse. They've been around since the first century, and they've been around ever since, and they always will be. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray by false teachers. Stay grounded. Stay attached to the Word. And don't be led astray by end-time speculation. Don't let people point to all kinds of current events and say, this is it, and speculate about end-time scenarios. Wars and earthquakes have been around from the first century. They will continue to be around. Here's my biggest burden is don't waste time. Don't get distracted from the work of pursuing Christ, sharing the gospel, and making disciples. Second, expect persecution. Started then, continues now. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He tells us, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. And so we should expect it. At this stage in America, it's mostly verbal. It's probably going to turn financial soon enough. And we just need to be okay with being disliked by the world for the sake of Jesus and his truth. Young people, you just got to be used, get used to being called a bigot. It's just going to happen. If you hold on to the Bible's teaching, you will be disliked. And it's okay. It's worth it. He's worth it. Jesus wins. We are on the right side of history. Being outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary was the last place one wanted to be. It was the wrong side of history. But last I checked, 
The Roman Empire is dead and Jesus Christ is as live as forever. Third, preach the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom starting in the first century was going forth. So preach this gospel to your neighbors and the nations. The temple was destroyed and it didn't stop God. He built a new temple, filled it with his spirit. It's called the church. And you are called to go and build this temple. Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. Spreading the presence of the Lord until the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Preach this gospel. And fourth, turn from your sin. Repent. Just as God judged unrepentant Israel in AD 70, he will judge all who are unrepentant at the second coming. So live in light of that day. Turn from sin. Turn from self. And turn to Christ. He's the Savior. He's the King. He is a true prophet. You can trust him, and you can entrust all of your life to him. He knows what he's talking about.